A question from Gerber on remote viewing. Um, I've seen an interesting lecture by a neuroscientist on psychic skills and miracles. He describes an experiment in remote viewing where the subject was able to successfully see the object in another room. However, later, when they added a sort of an electromagnetic screen between the rooms with the subject and the object, he was unable to remote view. In MBT, you don't really remote view through walls. You access the database and download the information packet about the object that you want to remote view. So how does MBT explain this? Unfortunately, it's not really said whether the subject was aware of this screen or not during the experiment. And if he was, perhaps, it could have been his own belief trap. But if he wasn't, then what stopped him? Unconsciousness intent from the experiment designers to stop him from remote viewing, maybe? Yes, all of those things. I think the person asking the question kind of has a really good uh, grip of the whole thing. Yes, uh, it doesn't matter whether there's a uh, electromagnetic screen or not. That's irrelevant. Um, plenty of people have remote viewed inside uh, Faraday cages, which basically is a, is a screen that surrounds you entirely, and it makes really no difference. So why did it, in this sense, have to work well? may have nothing to do with that. It may have just been sometimes remote viewers uh, get answers because they're in the right frame of mind, and sometimes some other mind, something else comes jumps in their mind, and they're, they're not so good. They're not 100% always you know, on target all the time. So it may have just been a fluke that that time he just didn't get it. Um, or, like he said, if he knew that it was there and he believed that it would stop it, then that would have stopped it. Or, as he also said, it could be that the experimenters who put it up there uh, had intentions that, uh, well, that will stop it, or we think that will stop it, and they just did a communication between consciousness to consciousness, and the guy got that idea that uh, this wasn't going to work this time, wasn't expected to work this time, so it didn't. It's hard to say why it, why it did that. It's, um, it's not clear. It, You'd have to go to that specific case. But in general, Faraday cages have not shown any ability to stop remote viewing or any other kind of, of uh, telepathic or, or empathetic uh, connection between people. It's not electromagnetic in nature. It is just data in a database, and it doesn't really matter what kind of barriers you put in or how far away it is. It's just tools again, right? Just tools. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Um, next question is on the dream reality. Um, obviously, we'll, we'll talk about this and the dream time and the dream reality. That's a big part of Aboriginal culture. We talked about cultures today as well. Um, this is from Zach, uh, MBT Forum. He says, is the dream reality a personal or a shared reality? I'm going to assume it must be a personal reality because it occurred to me that if it was a shared reality, then I must have an avatar that's always present in that dream reality. So what would my avatar do when I'm not experiencing the dream reality myself would it just lie there comatose i haven't encountered any comatose avatars in my dreams therefore i've got to conclude that the dream reality must be personal yeah the dream reality is mostly personal that doesn't mean that you can't have a shared experience um it just means that the shared experience is the exception and what's going on there is that the two individuals have connected through a consciousness link and they are you know, sharing aspects of a dream. So shared dreams happen, but it's in the margins and not that often because fundamentally, if you just talk about the dream reality, 
is individual. But you do have two individuals. They are both conscious, and they, are, they can communicate. They can connect. And if there's a strong connection between them, like they're, uh, you know, uh, twins or, uh, you know, mother and son or some other kind of, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, some other kind of a connection, then they might indeed show up in a, in a dream together because they are communicating consciousness to consciousness. And there's a, an overlap there. But the dream reality itself is personal. It's not, uh, yeah, it's, it's your own data stream. And it doesn't contain other, other play. The other players there aren't other players from your reality here most of the time. I know that I know that my dreams, Tom, feel incredibly real, but most of the time I, I don't know the people in them. Um, but the scenarios I find myself in are very strange, and the people, I, I, whether they're real and they just happen to have, have drifted in, I don't know. But um, they always leave me uh, perplexed every morning I wake up. <laughs> um, talking of sleep, um, Gerber asks uh, a question about clarification on less need for sleep. Um, in your books, you mentioned that you used to be a sleepy head and slept nine to ten hours a night. But after you became a regular in the non-physical, the need for sleep reduced to two to three hours. And it has stayed like that for years. And you remained very productive in work. Um, Gerber himself sleeps nine to 10 hours himself a, a night, but would love to be able to reduce it to maybe six hours. He says, we live in a busy world and that few hours would help me so much. Could you please share some hints and your insights on this phenomenon? Well, the, it's not so much a physical change that takes place as it is an attitudinal or, or mental change. And that mostly has to do with intent. You can get by with less sleep if you can be very, very focused on what you're doing. In other words, if you don't let that tiredness interfere with your cognitive function, and sometimes that's just brute force. Uh, for example, let's say you feel very, very tired. You haven't had a whole lot of sleep, but something really important comes up. Okay, I'll try to make something up. Let's say you're very, very tired. And one of your children runs into the coffee table and puts a big cut in their head and they have to go to the emergency room and have stitches put in it. Well, suddenly you're not tired anymore. You can react to that, deal with it. And after it's all said and done and everything's quiet again, now you're tired than ever. But while that was going on, you weren't tired. That's just because you focused. It was important, so you focused. When it's not all that important, it's just work you have to get done. You know, it's like, well, I got more work to do than I, than I can get done. It's not really what I want to do with my time, but it's work that needs to get done. Well, then you probably won't have that focus on it. So if you learn to, so it's not so much look, teaching the body not to be tired. And you can probably work on that where you don't need quite so much sleep. But I don't think that's the biggest part. I think the biggest part is mental where you learn to focus even though you are tired. You learn to push the tiredness away and bring up everything you need to deal with mentally, bring it up clearly. So you can work through your day, you can interact with people, and you're wide awake and seem to be doing fine, and you just refuse to give in to the tiredness. You refuse to process the feeling of tired. So you set the feeling of tired aside. You can do the same thing 
with hunger. You can just push the hunger aside. So, okay, you didn't eat breakfast, you didn't eat lunch, now it's dinner time, and there's something else you really need to do instead. You just ignore the hunger. And when you ignore it with enough focus, it just goes away. It's not like then you, you feel hungry. You just aren't hungry. You just ignore it. So your body may be seeing, saying, give me food, and you just say, nope. No sense complaining. I'm not going there now, so let it go. And the body will let it go. Or you just shut off those signals, however you want to express that. So you can get to the point where you only have to eat when you feel like it. You can skip a meal. You can skip two or three days worth of meals. Fasting is easy. You can just go on with your life, not eat for two or three days, and hardly even, don't miss it. Not hungry. Don't feel any particular problem is going on. And then you can start eating again, and everything's still fine. So that's just your intent overriding your bodily functions. So it's kind of a mind over matter thing to where you can you can turn off that message of pain. You know, people learn to deal with pain that way, in the same way. Um, something that was learned probably about 30 years ago, that people who have chronic pain had to take chronic drug, you know, chronically take drugs. And when they did, they'd get addicted, they'd have all kinds of side effects, and the drugs would end up ruining their life every bit as much as the pain was ruining their life. So it was a tough choice. Live with the pain or, you know, suffer the pain or suffer the drugs and the drug reactions. And some people realized that they could control the pain with their mind. They could basically eventually just tell their mind to ignore that pain. Well, it's the same sort of thing. You can ignore being tired. You can ignore being hungry. You can ignore pain. You can just turn those signals off to where you function just like they weren't there. Okay. That's more of a mind over matter. It's not so much that if you cut yourself, you won't feel the pain. It's just that you're not paying any attention and it gets to be selective. So you can cut off some pain and leave other pains. So that you can, yes, somebody pokes you with a pin, you'd feel it right away. But no, that kidney issue that you have that's chronic pain that never goes away, well, you can just turn that off. So it's not turning off all pain. It's just selectively turning things off. Your body gets good at that. People... I lived in a, in a well, I didn't actually live in a town. I went, to, I went to school in a small town that had a tannery just outside of town. And I don't know if you've ever been around tanneries or not, but they smell horrendously. It's a real strong odor. Part of the process of tanning hides is, a, is an odor that's strong enough to, you know, make you heave if you get a strong whiff of it. Well, the people who lived over on that part of town where the tannery was couldn't smell it. Sometimes the wind would change, and in my, in my high school, everybody would suddenly start choking and run to shut the windows because the, the wind was blowing the tannery odor into the school, and everybody's gagging and whatever. And the people who lived over on that area would say, what? I don't smell anything. They had, they had notched that out. I once lived about no more than about 200 feet from a raised railroad track that was about uh, 20 feet in the air, just about the, the upper level, you know, of my house. And it was a busy track. Trains ran through there all the time, such that when a train would go by, 
the whole house would shake. You know, pictures would fall off the of walls, and you know, dishes would all rattle in the cupboards. It was that kind of a thing, and the noise was horrendous. You'd have to scream at somebody two inches away from you for them to hear you. It's just this horrendous noise. I was much poorer then in those days, so you know that's what I could afford was this little house down by the this little cottage next to the railroad track. I was a graduate student then, and I got to the point, and so did uh, my family, got to the point that we didn't even notice it. The train would go by, and we just automatically stopped talking, start up again after it left, and if somebody asked us, did the train just go by? We'd go, well, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't notice it. We actually just didn't notice that, and it was that horrendous. You could actually, sometimes you'd see the stuff, you know, the dishes shaking, and you'd say, oh, a train must be going by, and then you could make an attempt to hear it, and there would be this roar. So you tend to, your mind can focus on certain things like that and just notch them out. So you get a notch filter. That's a, that's a double E term. You get this notch filter that just uh, you know, filters out that particular sound or that particular odor or the need for food or the need for sleep or any of the other things that, that uh, kind of your body tells you that you have to do. So that's how I would say deal with sleep. If it's something that you really just overcome that tiredness with focus and with an intent to not be tired, and you can dominate tiredness or hunger or lots of those other things, pain at will, and selectively. That's interesting I, to hear. Um, I can, if on. I may, I can... I can definitely share a story with that. I was on like a 15 hour drive uh, and it was about hour 13 and I was definitely getting tired. I mean, it was about 10 o'clock at night and um, I just decided to focus and say, all right, I'm just going to push through these last two hours. And uh, I got into this kind of zone where I could have gone for maybe another 10, you know, by the time I reached my destination, I wasn't tired anymore and I was still ready to keep going. So uh, that definitely, uh, your answer there uh, made sense yeah. from my personal experience. Yeah, the mind has a lot of power. We don't we don't give it nearly the credit that it's due. It's uh, yeah, the mind does lead and the body does follow. Tom, the next question is: Looking through the eyes of another avatar, um, would it be possible to connect to another avatar's data stream and look through their eyes? I was on holiday recently, and every evening a bird would sit at the same high spot on top of the holiday complex we were at, and this just made me think about what it could see up there and what a view it would have. Would it be possible to connect and see what it does see, or is this against the rule set? I guess the question here, Tom, really is, is there any benefit from doing that or being able to do that? Um, yes, sometimes there is, and yes, you can do that. Uh, it would be easier for you to do that with another person because it would be a lot easier if you interpret what they see and what they feel or what they smell or what they're tasting. But you can do that, experience what another person is sensing. Um, the only reason to do that would be if there was some way that that was going to help them. Otherwise, you're just, you know, butting into somebody else's reality. You're, you're a, uh, uh, I don't know, an eavesdropper, I guess. You're, you're kind of violating their privacy. So it's not something that you would do just to do it. But uh, it is something that you can do. Now, if you wanted to see what the bird could see, um, 
basically what you're doing then is you're asking the database to give you a picture of what you could see from that place where the bird is. Then that would give you a picture that you could interpret. If you actually wanted to see what the bird would see, and that's your that's your question rather than what what could I see if I was where the bird was is a different question than what could the bird see because the bird is going to see things differently than you do. Their eyes not necessarily work just like you. They don't have two eyes out in front. They've got eyes over here on the sides. They're going to see a picture that won't make sense to you because you're not used to processing that kind of visual data. So it depends on how you ask the question. If you ask the question of what could I see if I was where the bird is, you could get a picture of what, that's just remote viewing, right? You'd get a picture of what was there. If you want to see what the bird sees, you probably would have a hard time interpreting what that bird sees because you would not have the the you know you would not have created the mechanism for interpreting that visual data, and it wouldn't necessarily make sense to you because birds don't see what we see; they see it differently and they process it differently. But yes, it's possible. Um, you know, I've done it before uh, multiple times. Sometimes it's good if you want to know how somebody's feeling because you can't interact with them in a way to help them if you don't really know what's going on in their feelings. You know, if they're upset or this something like that, then you have to make sure you don't trigger more of that or whatever. So you need to understand a little bit of what they're feeling. So that's called empathy. And you can take that empathy to where you just have kind of a a, a, a little bit of a of a sense of where they are and how they feel, and you can take that em empathy to the uh, more extreme, to where you know exactly what they're feeling and thinking about a particular subject. You can feel their feeling. That's uh, that's available. It is just get jumping into their data stream, basically. Okay, um, that makes sense. I think to me. Um, I'm trying to read the next question, Tom. I'm sorry, I, I kind of got sidetracked. I'm trying to work out how to ask this next question, just making sure we get it right. Um, it's about various paths, having two different paths that leading, uh, lead to low entropy. Um, this person says that they have a friend who grew up a Catholic but is no longer overtly religious. Uh, he says he's spoken to him before about Tom uh, and, and my big toe, and he's always been very interested. But recently, he said something that made him think, hmm, uh, I've never really thought of that before. And what he said was this. I think that if we're all here in this PMR for a reason, and that reason could be to evolve to a certain level, is there a chance that there could be two paths, one to evolve being good, kind, thinking of others, being love, etc., and the other being to evolve in the opposite way to becoming evil, but both roads ultimately leading to a, the same goal? The reason that made me think twice about this was because I thought I'd heard Tom say on a fireside chat once or twice before that some IUOCs in the non-physical choose to lower their entropy negatively. And if so, does low entropy in this case really mean low entropy, whether it got that way through love or fear? Does it matter? Does it make a difference? I think that's, that's a little incompatible there. You don't uh, lower, you know, how can I say this? You know, fear is not a, generally a path in which one lowers one's entropy. Right. Now, you can, because of fear, work yourself down to a point where they're <laughs> where you're at the bottom of the barrel. You know, what do they call that? The dark night of the soul, you know, where, you, where the fear and your ego has gotten you to a point where you're at the bottom of the barrel. And at that point, you look around and say, I got to change. <laughs> this just can't be. And you open your mind, and then everything after that gets better. 
So now you might say that that fear and ego help you get better. Well, you know, that's, that's a context in which you might be able to make that statement. But basically, that's not the case. The fear takes you in a negative direction, and the love takes you in the opposite direction. And can you turn around? And can a fear lead you to a place where then you can turn around more easily? Whereas you wouldn't have turned around until you hit that bottom, bottom place, and that gets you to turn around. Well, yes, okay, those things can, can interact like that. But um, in fear is not a path. It's not like you have two paths, one, one to do you know, love and one to do fear, and then somehow you learn equal amounts from both of those or you end up at the same place. Um, yes, there are bad examples. People can learn from doing wrong things. That's learning from your mistakes. So you can do something bad, and then you can say, wow, that was really bad. I hurt a lot of people. I won't do that anymore. And now you grow up some because of it. So in that way, you can benefit from a, from a fear. But it's not really the fear that's benefiting you. It's the realizing that the fear is a bad thing and turning around that's benefiting you. You don't really say, well, the fear made me grow up. No, it didn't. The fear just puts you in such a bad situation that you saw that growing up was a better, was a better alternative. So I'd say that fear doesn't grow you up in any case it can maybe get you to a point where you realize that it's bad and 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 make it an intent to grow up but fear is always negative and yes some entities do purposefully evolve toward the negative because they are it's what we call a negative entity and they uh by evolve i mean they you know they purposely take the negative path that's the path they're on but it's a very limited path and they're not very happy campers. They are miserable entities for the most part that uh, are into control, power, and force. And the only thing that makes them happy is chaos and control, power, and force. You know, uh, hurting others is something that uh, pleases them because it shows them that they're powerful. So you get into really negative, dismally unhappy miserable entities that evolve that way but they evolve that way why would they choose that because they're looking for power they're looking for control and that's the easier way to get it right there's always a lot there's a lot it's always easier to do something negative than it is to do something positive there's always uh there's a thousand ways to do something wrong but only one or two ways to do it right that's why lowering entropy you know, it takes work, takes effort. And when you stop working at it, you tend to backslide. So you have a problem in a relationship and your wife or your husband is really upset with you. Well, there's probably a thousand things you could say that would make it worse. <laughs> but there's probably only two or three or four things you could say that would actually make it better. You see, So you have to think about it. You have to put energy into it. You can't just blurt out whatever you feel or whatever. You just need to. Think about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and make good choices. So the negative is easy. The negative gets you power in the sense that you can affect things. It's like a two-year-old. You know, when a two-year-old uh, sees, you know, has an older brother, and the brother builds up uh, some kind of structure out of blocks, the two-year-old comes along and kicks it down. And why? Because that's the only power he has. It's the only power he has to change anything. He doesn't have the coordination to build. He doesn't have the, you know, the, the, uh, the concepts. He doesn't have the picture spatial. He doesn't have any of that stuff put together yet. So building is just too hard. But he wants to affect the world in some way because that kind of 
verifies that he's alive and he's in this world. You know, he wants to affect it. Well, the way he can affect things is by making noise and breaking things and, uh, you know, kicking down things that other people do. So that's what a two-year-old does because that's them exerting themselves in the world and that's all they can do. So the, there are those entities that find the, the, the power is, is worth the de-evolution because they can assert themselves in the world more easily with negativity. And, but they're not uh, lowering entropy, Tom, no? They're not lowering entropy, uh. no. They're increasing their entropy. But the reason he says that is that they are, you know, they're, inter they're increasing entropy in the big picture. As far as their little picture, their own little picture, they're always raising entropy in the big picture. And that's what we're talking about. They're raising entropy in the bigger picture. In the little picture, they may be lowering entropy in that they are creating their own, you know, their own power, their own ability to order things. All right, so they can uh, they can maybe order things, force things, force people to do things against their will. Maybe they can uh, force other things can happen. They may may even be able to force order on things, like make the trains run on time. You know, uh, a little uh, tidbit out of history, right? With Mussolini, going to make the make the trains run on time. So they may force order, but you see, in the bigger picture, that raises entropy. It's just forcing order on a on a small scale locally within them. Okay, they can become more powerful, if you will, because they have a bigger forcing function. So in that way, we can say they lower their own entropy through control, power, and force. And I've probably said that before, and maybe that's what they're thinking of. But that's locally, just with them in a the small picture. In the big picture, what they're doing, even though they may be lowering some entry by, by forcing uh, structure in the big picture, they're raising entropy because whenever you force anything, <laughs> you're going to create more trouble than you know than you solve. Thank you, Tom. Um, I have one further, uh, sorry, one final question from Pauli, um, and uh, I hope I do this this question justice the way I read it. Um, Tom, I've noticed that there is a belief I have created for myself based on what you teach. It is a belief that knowledge increases the speed with which I acquire further knowledge. Now, I, I understand the logic of this mechanism and see it in my own experience of life, but I do also expect this result. Do you think that such a belief may be useful in the long view, or would you rather advise me to drop this belief and expectation? Yes, I'd say drop the belief and expectation. It doesn't add anything. The fact that the more you know, the easier it is to know more, it's just a fact. That's just the fact. You know, it's, that's a, like you say, that's an obvious uh, truth. If you know a lot, then it gives you access to the material to know more. So that is a fact to accept, but you don't have to expect it. If you expect it, then you've set something out for yourself to accomplish. You've set something out for yourself to do. All right, I know more now. I can expect that. I'll be able to learn this a lot faster. Well, that may not follow. You may not learn this a lot faster, and there may be other reasons. And now you're disappointed, and now you want to know what's wrong and why you didn't do it. You see, So the ex expectation becomes a problem because you don't necessarily know how everything is connected, and 
just how much better is this going to help you learn that? If they're really closely associated, then there should be a good correlation between them. If they're not, there may not be much of a correlation between them. And that may be some, you know, learning that may be something that's going to be particularly difficult for you because of some ego or some other issue you have, or maybe it's outside of the kind of stuff you normally deal with and you're not used to thinking in those terms. So there's all kinds of reasons why that expectation may fail to happen. And if you have the expectation, then you have disappointment. And where you have disappointment with yourself, that's not helpful. It helps, it, it hurts your getting in the way of actually seeing what's going on. So, yes, accept the fact that the more you know, the easier it is to know more. And use that in the sense that go, you know, build on your knowledge, but don't have an expectation of exactly what that's going to, to produce. You know, it's what is the, what's the old saying? He who has no expectations is rarely disappointed. So why set yourself up for disappointment? What does it add? What does that expectation or belief add? It doesn't add anything. You should still have the same motivation to learn more. Um, I don't see that the expectation of that belief actually gives you anything, and it actually makes it possible that you'll be disappointed with the result because you expected more than what actually happens. So. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Uh, the, the thing that I thought that it may add is uh, some sort of bias to increase the probability of it happening more and more. But uh, I, I see your point, and I also agree with it. Yeah, well, you can have that. You can still have that bias in that you can have a real positive attitude. Oh, I'm going to learn this new thing, and I'm, you know, that's going to be great, and uh, I'm going to learn it quickly. And you have all that positive attitude, but that doesn't mean that you have an expectation. One is an intent. That's a positive intent, but it's not necessarily an intent of an outcome. So your expectation is an intent for an outcome. But you can have an intent not based on an outcome, but just based on you're going to have a very positive process. You're going to learn this stuff, and you're going to pick it up really quickly. Yes, that's good. That will help that happen and will raise the probability. But don't have that intent that here's going to be the result. Let the result just be whatever it is. And you be however you are, and however you are is positive. So you can separate those two. I, I, I get your point. Uh, I think I have it mixed up somehow uh, with the placebo effect, where it is somehow an expectation, we, and it is a bias. So I think that, that is where I'm a bit lost. Yeah, yeah. It's not. You can use an expectation in the placebo effect, you can build an expectation. To create a positive attitude. That's a little bit problematical because now if that expectation isn't fulfilled, you will create a negative attitude. You see? So that's a little chancy. But creating a positive attitude in somebody isn't necessarily easy. So often that's done with an expectation. That's not the best way to do it. It's just a way. If, if people expect, yes, okay, I expect now I'm going to get healed. Well, that then makes them positive toward being healed. They're no longer worried about this disease. They're more positive, and that will work. But it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a risky way to generate a positive attitude because let's say you tell them, oh, you'll be healed, you know, and then they're not. A week goes by, and they're not any better. So now they feel worse. Not only do they have this disease, but the new greatest medicine couldn't do anything with it. Oh, they're hopeless now, you see. Now they've just ended up in a worse place than they were before. They've got a negative attitude toward their 
recovery or possibility of their recovery. So it's a, not the best way to create a positive attitude. It would be better if you could just build up a positive attitude in them without promising them anything as an expectation. That's just harder to do. It's a, it's a shortcut to use an expectation in the placebo effect, but it's risky. Thank you. That, that uh, connects us to additional topic which I had uh, solved in me a few weeks ago where I saw expectation as sort of a technology to motivate myself. Although I understand the whole idea of not it not being really helpful in the long run, I see that uh, most of the people in my environment really use expectations to uh, bring themselves to do some sort of uh, change in their life. And uh, I thought that maybe it can be useful, but yes, uh, the all you say are, is logical. Yeah, it's a, it, it can be used, and a lot of people use it, but it's got a risk. It's got a risk on the back end, whereas if you can just get a positive intent going without having to attach it to an expectation of a result, now you get all the benefits without any of the risk. That's just a better way to do it. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Okay, Tom, the next question is from Jumbles. Uh, it is in a question on, very, on experiencing various realities. Um, does Tom have any personal or anecdotal experience with an NPMR where he or someone he knew has experienced existence in a biologically-based 2D flatland or a 4D hyperspace or even a non-biologically-based space where one, maybe perhaps one composed of geometrical shapes rather than life forms similar to what we know? It has always struck me as arbitrary that there are only three, three and only three spatial dimensions. At the Monroe Institute's Gateway Program, I have heard rumors of out-of-body travelers encountering two-dimensional and even six-dimensional spaces, but the travelers were not present to be questioned. Now, I'm speaking here of spatial dimensions such as length, width, and height, because the word dimension can have multiple meanings. So, Tom, I'm most curious to hear what you or other forum members know about this, because I've been wondering about this for a long time. Okay, well, the, the dimensions of reality systems have to serve the function of the reality system. Okay, so the function of the reality system is to help consciousness evolve. And that function is best served if it's a very straightforward feedback from your system. And simpler is better because you have to process the feedback and make sense of it. So we end up here in a 3D reality frame because that's a reality frame that gives you enough degrees of freedom to do all the things we need to do without any unnecessary complication, which makes it efficient. If you only had two, then that would limit your, your decision space significantly. Now, if you had, you know, if you had four or more, that would come make more complicated decision space. So there's a yes, you would get more choices, let's say, in a four or five dimensional geometric dimensions, you know, spatial dimensions. You'd have more decision space because there'd be more ways that things could be constructed. On the other hand, you'd have also a lot more complexity in what you'd have how you'd have to make sense of things, and the processing would be a lot more complex. So the system is then going to do a a trade analysis on what's the best system for evolving consciousness, because that's what the virtual realities are all created for. 
So you'd have a, a trade-off between the added complexity with more decision space in space. So it'd be spatial decision space, not not the moral decision space, but spatial decision space. Well, what kind of value is spatial decision space? You know, how many ways do you can set down a cup on a shelf? You know, in the multi dimensions, that, that means different kinds of things. You see, well, the, the extra dimensions in space don't add a lot to the quality of consciousness kind of choices, which tend to be moral choices for the most part. So in any case, we see mostly, my experience is mostly they are 3D type reality frames because that's the sweet spot as far as decision space that's useful versus complexity and ability to process easily. So that just tends to be normal. Now, as far as that last thing about geometric shapes, I have been places where you know, quote, the critters, unquote, who live there, you know, the things, the life forms there, didn't at all look like what we're used to. And they were more geometrically shaped. You know, they, they weren't just triangles or something. Um, you know, one place, particularly, they were cones, more of a cone-shaped structure. Uh, looked more like a geometric shape. So things can take different forms, but still it was mostly a, a 3D reality. Now, another thing that would be very difficult is if, let's say that there is a six, you know, spatial degree reality. Let's say I do get into that data, I do get into that data stream. What am I going to make of it? What am I, how am I going to see that? Am I going to say, oh, I'm in a six degree freedom uh, spatial space here? No, I'd say, what? This is nonsense. This doesn't make any you know sense to me. I don't. Uh, I can't process this, and I'd leave it alone as just one of those spaces that was not useful because it wasn't didn't make any sense. So I think that you would, even if there were such places, if we got into them, they wouldn't be something that we would really be able to interpret the data very well. We'd be trying to do 3D pattern match to what we get in the data, and it just wouldn't work. And it would be very confusing, and I suspect unprocessable. So even if it was a 4D space, it would probably just be unprocessable. So I think you, you're not going to get people to come back and tell you, oh, I was in a 10D space, and I was in a, you know, a 7D space the other day, and this and that. Because you're just not going to be able to process that stuff. They're all going to look the same. A 10D space and a 5D space, they're all going to be jumbled to you. And you have to, you have to decode the information you get based on your experience. The experience you have with this avatar in 3D, that's how you decode the data you get. And you're going to try to decode it in 3D, and it's not going to work. So it just won't be a – you won't see it as a coherent reality frame. So that's why uh, I think I'd be kind of skeptical of those that claim they've been the you know ND space we're in is uh, is uh, greater than three now less than three a two dimensional space we could comprehend that and we could uh, process that because our three D space is a superset to a two D space so that would be comprehensible but that wouldn't necessarily be limited uh, entirely is for uh, consciousness evolution because we've all read Flatland, I guess, and we realize that those little creatures in Flatland, they had moral choice and they had things that they had to do. So that was a learning 
a learning space. I suspect it wouldn't be as rich a learning space as a 3D space. Therefore, I wouldn't think that the system would make a whole lot of things that were less efficient, more limited that way. But um, in any case, that would be a possible thing we could decode. I've never run into any of that. My experience is that all the spaces I've been in that I was able to function in were all 3D spaces. And uh, I don't really, I'm trying to remember if I've ever had a, a sense of being in a space and getting a data stream that was just a jumble that I couldn't decode it, and I don't think I've ever had that experience. You know, it's just hypothetical. Uh, talking about if there were, hypothetically, these higher dimensions space, it would be impossible to, for us to decode with our experience space. So I think mostly it's 3D space. 2B, I've never been there to a 2D space. Um, I have read Flatland, though, and see the possibility of it, but I don't know that it would happen very often. It'd be a pretty rare space if that uh, were the case. It's sort of like, uh, you know, once you've done what uh, 2D games, once you've done Pac-Man and Pong, you know, and then you've graduated to World of Warcraft and uh, uh, No Man's Sky, it's kind of hard to go back to, uh, you know, Space Invaders or some kind of two-dimensional game. It's like they just don't have, you know, they're not as challenging. They don't have as much a draw for us. So it would be the same way. It would be a limiting space to, to grow up in. But it's possible. I've never seen it. All right. Thanks, Tom. Um, Adam, uh, you have the next question for Tom? Hey, Tom, yeah. Uh, on your recent trip to Boston, you we're, I asked you about uh, ice cream, uh, and you mentioned the Champion Juicer, which I ended up finding on uh, Craigslist for a pretty good price. And now I've been making ice cream uh, nightly for my family, and my you know we absolutely love it. Uh, so that goes mentioning to those who want to get off, uh, you know, sweet, sweet treats, but still have the treats, you know, a fruit based ice cream. But I was reading the original post where this stemmed from, and you mentioned a cone, uh, that was without sweetener. And I'm, I'm wondering, uh, what that cone was. Oh, I can get those just, uh, in the, uh, my, my, uh, supermarket publics that I go to, they have a um, they call it cake-based cone, not of a not a sugar cone, but a cake cone, and it's made by Keebler, and it's just a small cone, and it has no sugar in it at all. No kidding. Yeah, and it's just a normal product made by Keebler out on the market. You know, they just don't put any sugar in it. All right, that's uh, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You can't find it. Uh, you know, I'll. Uh, take a picture of it and send it to the, to the box, but it's like a blue box with, you know, Keebler elves on it or something. It's just, it's called a sugar cone, but that's, that's the nature of the cone. It doesn't have any sugar in it. All right. Uh, I mean, actually, it's not, it's not called a sugar cone. It's called a cake cone, cake but cone. it doesn't cake. Yeah. It's a cake cone, but no sugar. I, actually, uh, if you were going to take a picture of something, I'd rather see that list of flavors, un Uncle Tom's <laughs> list of ice cream flavors. Yeah, I had a list of, uh, yeah, I had 60, 70, 80 different flavors of ice cream that I made when my kids were small and needed things like that. But basically, it's just fruit ground up. And to give you a hint that if you just take a bunch of uh, uh, strawberries and grind them up, you'll get a really intense strawberry flavor if they're ripe strawberries. Or um, 
if you get just bananas and grind them up, you'll get a very intense banana flavor. It's more intense because of the, the, the grinding. This stuff comes out, by the way. You run it through this champion juice. You just take frozen fruits. You run it through this juice. It comes out of soft ice cream. So it's just a, it's a lick. It sits on the end of a cone, and it's just like ice cream. Tastes sort of like ice cream, and it doesn't need any sweetener because it's fruit. It's got all the sweetener right, right in with it. So it's really good, but I found that bananas, of course, will make a very smooth ice cream. They come out creamy. Uh, some things won't be as creamy. If you use uh, grapes, that's mostly water, and it'll come out real icy. You know, so if you want to uh, take things like blueberries that won't, it'll be a little more icy and won't stick together. Well, what you want is blueberries mixed with bananas. Use bananas as your as your kind of base. And mix all kinds of other flavors with them. And the bananas will make them creamy. And the other fruit will give them the flavor. And besides, banana flavor goes good with everything else. Now, there's a few other things come out creamy that are good, like peaches. You can freeze peaches and run them through. I cut them. I take the peach and cut out, you know, cut off the seed and so on. And I put them in chunks, wrap the chunks up in paper, like a wax, not a wax paper, but, you know, the kind of uh, cellophane papers that you get. So I, I lay them all out in a run. I wrap them all up. So I got this stick that's about a half an inch in diameter and about uh, eight inches long or so, 10 inches long. But just peaches that are frozen. Put them in the freezer that way. And uh, then you just run those down through your machine, and out comes the best peach ice cream you've ever had. And if it's too peachy for you, too strong, then mix it with some bananas. So it's a good treat. My kids grew up on those. My grandchildren come up, and the first thing they say is they ask me if I'll make them ice cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's awesome. It yeah, really pineapple is. Pineapple is another good one. You can buy, get the pineapple, just slice it into strips and you know, run that through. It's just any, any of the fruits make a delicious uh, ice cream. Great. Great. Thank you. MBT recipe book coming soon, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Brilliant. Listen, well, Tom. For those people that have children, figuring alternative desserts is a is an important issue because otherwise, you know, they're going to end up uh, feeling deprived that they go to their friends' houses and they get really good desserts, and they come to your house and they don't get any at all. You know, so you need to have something for them that uh, lets them feel like they're privileged as opposed to uh, you know left out. I've been to the house. I've tried the um, I've tried the uh, the banana one, and I have to tell you, it is fantastic. It is, and we do it at home here. Um, Tom, we have seven minutes left. I have three questions in front of me, so I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to tell you what the three subjects are. You tell me which one you think we should finish on. Uh, the right. the, que the question subjects are your views on enlightenment. Uh, B is karma and the law of attraction, and the last one is overcoming expectations. What takes your fancy there? Oh, let's do overcoming expectations because I've talked to the other two more often than I have those. Okay. So let's see what that is. The other two I've said enough, you know, I've said a lot about the, 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 I can do them just real quick and that is enlightenment probably isn't a thing. You know, it's a, it's a metaphor. And um, if you think you're enlightened, it's a good sign that you're probably not because uh, enlightenment is, is, uh, is a metaphor for having a low entropy system, but there's always room to grow. There's always more things to do. So that's kind of it for enlightenment. And 
What was the other one? I can maybe give a... It's karma and the law of attraction. How how guys yeah. or anything in the NPMR have yeah. given bad information in the past. Yeah, karma, karma and law of attraction basically has to do with your intent modifies future probability. That's how they, they work. And uh, karma is basically, you, there's no free pass. You have to keep working at it until you get it. So that's all karma is. Uh, you Growing up requires you to actually grow up. You can't say, well, I've been trying for a long time. Can I you know, go to the next level? And it's like, no, you got to do the work. So if you make bad decisions, you got to keep working until you make good decisions. But anyway, that's those two. Let's just go on to the other one then and yeah. see what we do with us. I think on that karma and law of attraction question, there's a bit more depth to the question. So maybe we'll come back uh -huh. to that uh, next month. So they'll have to tune in to listen to uh, what the question is. Okay. Okay. Overcoming expectations from Turbo. Uh, listening to the May Fireside chat, you answered a question about MPMR by saying that even a fear you don't realize you have can hinder your attempts to navigate within MPMR. Now, I think the question was relating to kids getting older and losing the ability to contact the non-physical beings as they get older. So my question mm -hmm. is this. How can I get rid of an expectation? For some reason, I have a preconceived idea of what I expect MPMR to be like. And for some reason, I expect it to be not clear and precise like here in PMR. I expect it to be more dreamlike and confusing, just like getting swept along in a dream. I use binaural beats combined with meditation and try to just let happen what happens. But I think my expectations, how can I rid expectations without experiencing so mostly the mpmr experience i have had like info from the future probabilistic database has come in dreams and has been dreamlike with images but no sound so would this be because it was indeed a dream or because my expectation was that it would be like a dream well your expectation is probably the driver there now if you're having an out of body then you never lose consciousness you start conscious and then you stay conscious and then you switch data streams and you're still conscious so there's no confusion with are you dreaming or not because you've never lost consciousness you have a continuous stream of consciousness so in that case you know you're not dreaming you know you're just in a different uh, reality system uh, if you do lucid dreaming then you tend to believe that it's more dreamlike so it is more dreamlike the expectation is probably your problem how do you get rid of it you just you know how do you get rid of a belief you know an expectation is another another uh, kind of belief so how do you get rid of a belief something you believe well you you have to again it's going to take a little work when you catch yourself you know being pulled along inside that belief you need to stop and get out of it and not have that that uh, expectation anymore it's just a matter of i guess again force of will that you don't get stuck in that belief that you're just open to whatever happens however it happens um you may try to perhaps counter a foggy belief with a clear belief it's going from one belief to another but maybe the two of them will cancel each other out and you'll end up in the middle with no belief uh if you want some kind of a, a, a um, kind of a tool that you can use uh in your mind, convince yourself that it's going to be clear. It's going to be just like here. It's going to be, uh, um, you know, something that you see in, in uh, uh, vivid technicolor with detail. 
and that you can zoom in and out on the detail. You can get in as detailed as you want or you can zoom back out just like you do with the zoom function on your, on your computer screen. Um, so it, you just have to let go of that belief. I don't know. It's not an easy thing to do, let go of a belief. When we're trapped in a belief, it's hard to think other ways. And like most of the letting go of fear is the same way. It's kind of hard to do that when you're in the fear, but it's just force of will. You have to have the, the intent to let it go and just keep working on it. And don't be discouraged if it doesn't, if you can't let it go right away. Just keep working on it. And very slowly, you'll start making progress if your intent is there to let it go. But yes, if you have foggy, nonspecific, kind of out-of-body experiences, that's because you believe that that's the way they are. I went through that one sometime, I don't know, a couple of years into Monroe, where my experiences, uh, I felt I had to go into the fog to get there. And uh, Justin had a similar kind of thing that we worked with when we were together uh, at Monroe. Uh, it's the same sort of thing. You have this process that you go through. And part of the process is relaxation, and then it's let all the stuff go, and then you're in this reality frame, but you're just barely in it because you want to be asleep, but not asleep. You want to be asleep, but awake, and that's on this border, like theta, hypnagogic state, and you think that's the way it has to be, so that's the way it is. And realizing that it doesn't have to be that way, that you can be just as clear-headed as you are when you're awake and get in the out-of-body state just as well. And the biggest thing is that when you do it, you go, well, this couldn't possibly be true. <laughs> I couldn't be in an out-of-body state. I'm just making all this up because I don't feel in the fog. You know, there's the, I don't have all those signs and trappings of the things that, that uh, to me, say that I'm in this, this uh, out-of-body state. And without that, then, you know, you toss it away. So you, you, you don't know that you can do it because you've defined that as not being it. It takes a struggle. I don't know, maybe Justin could say something about that, but he struggled with, uh, with this and was working on, on getting in a state without having to go through so much process and fog. And uh, I believe at Monroe, he kind of got the idea that he could get through that. And you're, you're real familiar with that. For me, that's going back now about 40 years. <laughs> But uh, I just made up my mind. So, well, let's just try it. Let's just do an experiment. I'm not going to get in the fog state. I'm just going to let go of the stuff that's, you know, my sense data, and I'm just going to do something else. And the thing I'm going to do is maybe remote view or do some other kind of thing, and I'm going to check and see if it works. And I found out it worked just as well if I did it from a clear awake state as it did when I did it from the foggy state. The only thing that was the same is that I had let go of the sense data. That was, the, that was true of both states. One of them I let go of it and was in the fog, and the other one I just let go of it. And that, uh, it worked fine. But I just did experiments that convinced me that it really was real and not just my imagination because I really then could go collect data that was paranormal while I was in that clear, awake state, and I could do it just as easily, and then I realized it would go a whole lot easier because I didn't have all the fog to deal with. It was simpler. And easier. So I had to overcome that, and that's the way I did it, was just through experimentation. Well, Justin, do you have any suggestions for this, uh, this person? Well, the one thing that you've always said that applies to this and life in general is to just keep at it. 
anytime I've had any kind of, uh, you know, struggle or stumbling, I just go back to just keep at it. Uh, so that's kind of what helped me, you know, just keeping at it. But I think for me, it wasn't so much the, the sense of fog that I was, uh, looking for, but the sense of being somewhere else and being some place that made it feel real to me. Uh, but it, it took me a while to realize that there's not necessarily a place and I'm not necessarily using my eyes or using my ears or touching things. It's more my interpretation of, of the information. And I had ridden off of a lot of uh, experiences where, you know, there's a sensation of floating somewhere and you're, I'm getting information but because it wasn't visual or audible or tactile I, I wrote it off as not being real so that in conjunction with finally listening to your advice of uh you know just kind of assuming that it's real and not waiting for all these you know set things to happen before i accept it as real uh it, it made it all fall together and uh it was pretty surprising to say yeah well i guess that that was that was real even though it felt like i wasn't someplace else and it I didn't feel like mm -hmm. I was uh, receiving information in a certain way that I expected to receive it, uh, but it was still there. It's just, uh, it, it is almost like experiencing things in, in a different, I mean, like you were describing, uh, what would it be like to be in a 10 dimension reality? It's, it's kind of like you really don't have any idea because you're not accustomed to it. So in a sense, it's comparable to that, to experiencing existence in a way that you're not normally uh used to experiencing it without visual and, uh, you know, audible mm -hmm. and all those normal uh, sensation. Yeah, and the thing to do then is just to test it. You have to convince yourself that it's, you know, the information and the things you're getting are real things that are not, in, not just your own imagination. You're not creating them, and that's just experience. But if you throw it away out of hand without ever having the experience because it doesn't meet your expectation, you see, then you never get the point. You never get to the point where you can test it because you've not worked with it. So that's my advice: is to don't worry about the, you know, the, whether how it feels or or whether it is like your other ones. Just do it. Do it clearly. Do it with a perfectly clear head, and test it and see whether or not the information you're getting is indeed same quality and type of information that you got before when you went through the fuzzy place and or the place that that met all your criteria you see and i think you'll find that after you work with it a while that it's not only just as good it's better and then suddenly you can let go of that expectation because you realize it's actually a constraint it's a ritual that you go through that's a constraint that, that limits you what you can do that's a great place to finish, Tom. Um, we have to uh, wrap it up. We have come to the end of another fantastic fireside chat. Um, I've managed to suppress my hunger for three hours, so that works. Um, thanks to everyone for all the great questions submitted again, as always. Uh, thanks to those who joined us in the room this afternoon. Thank you, Tom, for your time, and thank you for home for watching. Please join us again for the next MBT Fireside Chat, and for now, take care.